I'm going to start you off today with a little uh, crowd participation, have you talk to your neighbor. Uh, so you can talk this part of the sermon, you ready? Best $500 you ever spent. All right. Best $500 you ever spent. Ready and go. Share that with somebody around you. Best $500 you ever spent. Now when they leave there, uh, you've got a huge Christian presence there in Ethiopia, most of the places they're going. Uh, but when they leave there, they're going to get on a plane and they're flying over to Entebbe, Africa, and eventually Kampala. And some of you are uh, familiar with some of the ministries that we've had here and some of the people in our church, relatives of family in our church that run ministries over there. It, downtown Kampala, uh, other than where I've been in Calcutta, and I'll talk about that on a different day, um, it is, there's a vacuum of God's presence there like I've not seen. And what happens because of the poverty that's, that has been striking the nation and the population growth. They're, they're moving from 22 million people because of the population growth. They're going from 22 million people. It, it, was, it was leveled off a little bit because of the AIDS crisis. One out of two people got AIDS and died before they were 30 years old. So it was keeping the population down. But now that the um, antiviral drugs for AIDS have come to the area and they're inexpensive and everybody can get them, the population is skyrocketing in the last 10 years. So much so that they had 22 million people in the country in 2010. That's expected to be 44 million people in the country by 2030. The population doubling. That'd be like the United States going from 300 million to 600 million in 20 years. That's, uh, that's what they're dealing with over there right now. And because that, in many ways, and there are too many mouths to feed with the structure or lack of infrastructure they have to take care of the people. And so what happens is they take the children they can't take care of. And, um, and it's just a matter of like, which kids am I going to feed, which am I not? And a lot of times the older kids, if they've got, they've got a five-year-old and now they've got a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old and a baby, the mother's like, I can't take care of them. The five-year-old's going to have to fend for themselves. And so the mothers, if you can imagine being in this position as a mother, the, the, the mothers um, go down to the slums or they will have a family member take their four or five-year-old, drop them off in the slums. And it's like, bye, that's it. And so the young men of the community um, often pick up the little boys down some. It's like if you've ever seen uh, or read the book uh, Lord of the Flies, uh, it's all run by youth. Everybody just about that lives in the slums is under 17, 90% of the population in there. And the young men there, young men, teenage boys, pick up these four and five-year-old boys and they teach them how to shoplift because if they get caught stealing stuff out of the store, then they don't go to jail. So they teach them how to shoplift, how to pit pocket people in the market square, uh, generally how to just rob and steal. Um, but the little girls don't get taught to do that. They get taught to do something else. And uh, here's a picture of when we went down in the slums, and uh, here are little girls that get dropped off down there, about that age. And then uh, sometimes the men will pick them up, and this is a guy that we partner with, and if they see a little girl like that dropped off in the slums, he knows, Lutaya knows, that if we don't get her out of there in 24, 48 hours at the max, probably within the first 24 hours, the gangs will pick her up and she'll be doing favors for grown men the next day, just as quickly as they can teach the girls how to serve the older men. It's a, it's a very disheartening thing. 
Um, I remember the first time that I was exposed to child trafficking. Uh, many of you, I don't know if you've watched TV this week, but with the Super Bowl, it's probably the worst human trafficking event in our nation. We know what's going on. That's why the football players are making commercials. Have you seen a public service announcement about the human trafficking in the NFL cities? A lot of you have seen those. We, it's a problem here, but not like overseas, because here, for the most part, if the government's aware of it, if the police are aware of it, then they put a stop to it if they see it actually going on. It's not the way it is most of the world. In fact, I remember the first time I was in Thailand, uh, there were two little girls sitting by the side like this, and I saw an American man come up, hand some money uh, to a man that was standing nearby, and he grabbed the hands of the two little girls. And my question was, is that an adoption going on? And my guy told me, only for the next eight hours. And the American man walked off with two little girls like this into the hotel. And uh, it really made me sick to my stomach. It was the first time I was 30 years old. Um, it was, this was in Bangkok. And they started sharing with me the story um, of a place that we would go next in northern Thailand called Chiang Mai. Actually, uh, Mark Witt served over here for some time, he and his family. And there was a place called the House of Love. And when I went into the House of Love, uh, we met there and this is the mother of one of the children. And all the, all the women there over the age of 14 pretty much had the same story. Um, in the hills of Chiang Mai, it's where, it's where heroin comes out. It started back in Vietnam. Uh, opium, heroin come out of that area. Um, man, this is really difficult for me just to go back and relive this. I, I thought about it during the sermon prep. but um, It's different when I'm talking out loud. Um, I, went, I went into this, this house of love that our missionaries run, and uh, a dozen ladies there, age 14 to 28. A dozen ladies, age 14 to 28. And then about 15 kids. And the 15 children were the children of these dozen ladies, 14 to 28. All these 14 to 28-year-old women were these little girls on the street to Bangkok or Chiang Mai or Chiang Rai when they were four and five years old. The reason they were on the streets at four or five years old is because these little girls' fathers, these little girls' fathers, because they were hooked on opiates, sold their little girls to, be go, to go be sold in the cities at four or five years old. And so I walk in, I see every child that's there is actually a child of prostitution. All the 14 to 28-year-olds are there um, because they were victims of human trafficking, sold by their fathers or grandfathers into that trafficking. And so I asked, why are they here now? All of them had AIDS, and they still work the streets when they have AIDS. Uh, but when they start getting the open sores on their body, then that's when men know that they have AIDS and they won't pay to spend time with them. And so they basically go to the house of love in their latter stages of AIDS with their children because they need a place that they know will take care of their children so that their little girls and boys don't end up on the streets like they were left on the streets by their fathers or their grandfathers. Are y'all following with me, the cycle that goes on here? And the house of love takes care of these kids, gets them an education, raises them so that they can have a more normal life. It's not a normal life, but it's a normal life for the children of street kids. Um, 
a couple of the 14 to 28 year old women were on their deathbeds. I'd never seen any people with AIDS with sores just all over their face. I'd, I'd never seen that to that point in my life. And then, uh, goodness. And then uh, when I walked into the, where the kids were, here's a picture they took of me. This little boy, his name was Shibo, uh, ran up to me and just stuck his arms up. And I was a mess by this point, and I just picked up Sashibo and uh, didn't have any diapers, and he immediately peed on me. <laughs> I just remember that. And I remember thinking, like, that a lot of you, like, if you're younger, you don't think this way, but there's still a lot was not known about AIDS at that point. So where he peed on me, I immediately had a fear, like, could I have possibly gotten AIDS from him peeing on me? And uh, it was just all down my shirt, and I'm holding there. But I wasn't going to put him down because he was smiling and just playing with me. And uh, so I, I asked in the most tactful way I knew how. I'm like, okay, like all the mothers here, they all have AIDS. But a lot of times mothers with AIDS pass on the virus to their children when they're born. So of the 12 to 15 kids that were there, the little ones running around. So Shiva was one of the youngest ones I was holding. I said, of all the children in the room, have you had all these kids tested? Yes. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, how many of them have AIDS? And they're all of them except the one you were holding. And I immediately breathed a sigh of relief, like, I'm not going to get it. And then it hit me how selfish I was that my primary concern when he peed on me was whether or not I was going to die like the rest of them were. And as I held him there, they brought all the kids because we were the visiting missionaries. And the children came in, and the missionary pulled out a guitar, and he started singing a song. And then they went into Jesus Loves Me. And here all these children singing, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I just thought, how can we sing this song? How insensitive can we be? How do they sing this with joy? How do their mothers who are dying sing, yes, Jesus loves me? And so uh, I had to put Sushibo down, and I ran outside, and I literally threw up in the yard. After we did it there for a couple of hours, we went back to our hotel, which was an okay hotel, but they said they wanted to get us a good meal. Um, it was after worship time, so they took us to the uh, local Weston. And we had the International Buffet. Here's a picture of the, of the, of the Weston there in Chiang Mai. And I got to say, like, the, the International Buffet that they had there uh, was really nice. I mean, it, they had food from all over the world, chefs standing around. Chefs were back in here and, and over in this area. Uh, the, way, the service was unbelievable. I mean, we had a waiter for every two people just standing there waiting for everything. Fill up your water every time you took a drink. They were there. And... Uh, the food was fantastic, and their pails eating, enjoying it. And I'm not putting them down, but I just couldn't separate myself from what we had just come from. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how much does it cost to eat here? And they said, 500 baht. And uh, I just remember 500 baht. And I ran the math through my head, and that was 12 U.S. dollars to eat this incredible buffet that if you'd go to, you're spending 100 bucks if you go to Nashville today to have a dinner or a buffet like this. It was just, it was amazing. And uh, I didn't want to shame the rest of the crowd with me. And they were like, why aren't you eating? And it just, you know, I didn't react in a good way. There were a lot of teenagers from the youth group with me. And I'm like, why are we eating? Why am I not eating? Why are you eating? 
how can we sit here? Why'd y'all bring us here today? I looked at the leader. I'm like, why'd you bring us here to this five-star resort? Did, like, we've just been in Calcutta where Mother Teresa watching out where all those children die. We've just been here, and now we're coming to celebrate the end of our trip in a five-star hotel. Like, what's wrong with us? And I don't, I don't know if you struggle with it like I do. Whenever you do anything nice, and if you go and you see stuff like this, and then I come home and I, you know, you, you've seen the commercials, right? They run them for 60 seconds and they try to guilt you. You know the ones that when they come on, you grab the remote immediately and you just turn it as quickly as you can. This is a struggle. How can, how can we spend any money on luxuries like the Westin? How can we take a vacation to Aruba? How can we have any party? And that's what I was thinking while we're in the West End and everybody's celebrating and they're having a party. I said to the leader, how could you bring us here? And he said, Steve, come in, come in, I want to talk to you. And he brought me over to this side. He said, Steve, you know the Bible probably as well or better than anybody here. He said, I just got to ask you a Jesus question. I said, okay. He said, your question whether or not it's ever right to spend money on nice things. Is that right? Or whether you'll ever do it again. Yes, that's what I am. He said, did Jesus ever go to parties? Did Jesus participate in feasts? Did people around Jesus spend money on extravagant things? And when they did, sometimes, did he bless it? I said, yeah, yeah, he did. He said, man, I don't know what the Bible answer is. All I know is that Jesus had a party. You need to look in that Bible and you need to figure it out. But until you figure it out, you don't need to put that on these kids. So that's what I did. I came home and I read the New Testament and I didn't get the answer. So I started Genesis. And I said, God, I, gotta, I, I don't know the answer. I need you to give it to me. Because if you don't, I'm going to struggle the rest of my life just spending money on a Big Mac. And then I came to Deuteronomy 14. And uh, now I'm going to try to... I'm going to try to gather it together with you if I can. And I'm going to teach you what I've learned through my studies. If you never have struggled with this before, then I encourage you to go visit our places in the Dominican. That's the easiest trip. As far as getting on a plane going, going down to Mexico, maybe the slums there. But uh, it's a whole different level when you go to India and Africa. A whole different level. What Tyler and Michael are about to see is going to change them for the rest of their lives. So I've entitled today's sermon, The Party Tithe. What does that look like? How can we ever party? How do we combine that with the tithe? Okay, now in order to order, understand this principle, and I've got 30 minutes to do it because I've slobbered and blubbered through the first 15. <laughs> I'm gonna do my best. There are three biblical uh, tithing patterns that I want you to see in the Bible. Um, how many of you are aware there are three tithes in the Bible? Three types of tithes. How many of you are aware there are three types of tithes? Two types of tithes. A couple of hands on the two types of tithes. I'm going to share with you the three types of tithes that you see in the Bible. Okay, we left off last week with just the principle of some fruits, giving God your leftovers or paying your own bills first, and then giving a tithe to the work of the Lord, offering to God uh, just the an offering of thankfulness, that's the first fruit. Some fruits is trying to pay God off, uh, pay him back, assuage your own personal guilt, 
I feel sorry for the kids in Africa, so I'm going to tithe to my local church. I'm good now. Just like the kids that gave the parents a $100 bill. Okay, God, we're good. I gave my 10%. I'm, I'm, I'm good, right? But the first fruits that Abel gave is I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to start here. So in the course of time, we saw last week, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Why did he have regard for his and not for Cain's? Because Cain brought the first fruits. He didn't give God leftovers. The first thing that comes off the vine, the first paycheck that comes in, of uh, the amount of money you get, the first check that you write, uh, the first investment that you make, it always goes back to this idea of the first fruits. I'm going to trust God with the best. Now, some people will say, well, you know what? The whole concept of tithe, they didn't say anything about Abel tithing there. And that's just told to old tithe to Old Testament law. We don't see we don't see tithing practice outside of the Old Testament law. That's not true. It's given at the beginning long before Moses came upon the earth. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So here's the priest. He's the priest, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Uh, and Abraham comes to him after he just won a battle. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, uh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is before Moses commanded the law or whatever, but just as an act of worship, this is where we start in our giving patterns, giving back to God, our first fruits. We give God a tenth of everything, okay? And some people will say, well, in the New Testament, it never talks about how we should continue the tithe. Wrong, Okay. How many of you know Michael Jordan's number? 23. Raise your hand if you know Michael Jordan's number. You should be able to remember this verse. Look at all those hands go up. Thank God for Michael Jordan in this, okay? You will, anytime someone says to you that the New Testament doesn't teach us to tithe, that's Old Testament law, doesn't apply today, nowhere in the Bible is the New Testament. Not only does the New Testament say it, Jesus says it. And you'll find that in Matthew 23, 23, Michael Jordan's number. You may not remember John 3, 16, but you can remember Michael Jordan when it comes to giving. Think Michael Jordan's really rich, should he tithe? Here's the answer, Matthew 23, 23, okay? Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill, that's little spices. In other words, you tithe off every little thing that comes in, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you honor the letter of the law by tithing, giving a 10% of the little things, but you're not honoring the bigger picture of what the Old Testament teaches when it comes to giving justice to the oppressed, to giving mercy to those who are down and out, and you're living faithfully in private what you supposedly practice in public. Watch this. He's saying, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, what are the others? What have they neglected? They've neglected justice. They've neglected mercy. They've neglected faithfulness. Everybody see that? But what, does he, what are the these that he says that you ought to have done? What's, what should, what's he saying these you ought to have done? The tithing. Do you all see that? He's saying, like some people say, man, I'm just interested in justice and mercy and faithfulness. So is Jesus. But just because you're focused on justice, mercy, and faithfulness doesn't mean that you ignore tithing. Of course you tithe and you seek justice. You grant mercy. You live in a faithful way. Do y'all follow that? Where do we find that verse? Matthew where? 
23.23, Jesus says, this is what you ought to do. Of course you ought to tithe. Good, I'm glad you tithe. But there are other aspects that you need to do. It's not just your tithe, your first kind of tithe. What about the other kinds of tithes is what Jesus is saying here, okay? So the first one that we all know about, that pastors talk about the most, because this is where we work, is the local place of worship. The storehouse tithe that the Old Testament talks about, that Jesus says we all ought to do, okay? Uh, and again, go back to the attitude I said last week. It's not paying back, God back. It's just a, it's, it's a token of gratefulness on our part, of thankfulness. Malachi writes, for God says to the prophet Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. This is why this tithing principle doesn't go away over the years. Therefore, you children of Jacob are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statute and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? We're not living the way we're supposed to. Where do we start? He said, well, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Here's how you've robbed me. In your tithes and your contributions. There are contributions that you should be making to the work of the Lord over and above the 10%. You've robbed me of both, he's saying. And you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Like if I look, God's saying, if I look at what the average follower of God, Jehovah God, Jew, what you're giving, the whole nation, you're robbing me. So how do we fix it? How do you reverse the curse? He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That's the local place of worship where your local Levites would minister. Full 10%, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I could preach that all day long, but I'm going to keep going because I slobbered for the first 15 minutes. And in Nehemiah, he writes, of the storehouse tithe, bring the first of our dough and our contributions Okay, now notice that the first of our dough, whatever the grain that comes in, we're going to give the first, the tithe right off the top. But in addition to that, the contributions, the over and above the tithe giving, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, the priest, uh, to the priest. This is where it is. Where are your priests at your local place of worship? To the chambers of the house of our God and to bring the Levites, the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in, in all our towns where we labor. Everybody see that? So we're not sending it to Rome. He's not saying the primary 10% needed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. It goes to the lake, local place of worship, the synagogues in their towns. Everybody, everybody see that? In all the local towns, you give that 10% there. And then when you give that 10%, you give it to what group of people? The Levites who work in your town. Everybody see that? Who were the Levites? Their local, the equivalent of their local pastors. Here's the 10%. You guys use it how you think God has fit, ha, ha, would use it. You do it as you see fit. We should never ask the question, um, hey, can I give my tithe, part of my tithe, to this ministry over here? Okay? Your tithe goes to the local church, all 10% of it. That's where you write it. If you want to give additional contributions, that's fine. You can do it. There's no rule that says that you can only give 10% to the work of the Lord. The 10% goes to the local storehouse. That's what it says, and God says you're robbing me by putting it in other places. Now, there's another tithe that the Bible talks about, and that's the charitable tithe. And it's the concept a lot of you have heard of alms. Muslims practice this. They give 2.5% of their, they don't have a tithe to the local mosque. They just give, they're supposed to give at least 2.5% 
of their gifts to the poor. And this is what Moses writes as the charitable tithe, the alms. Now, what does that look like? A little different math here. Watch with me here. At the end of every three years, Moses writes, in Deuteronomy 14, this is in your Bibles, that's why I had you turn there. You shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it within your towns. Okay, watch. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So he said, hey, this is something that God's going to bless if you take another tithe once every three years. So this isn't 10%. This, and again, I want to make this really clear in, in case, man, I know some of you have been beat down with shoulds and, and, and guilt and shame from pastors from the pulpit all the time over giving and every other thing that talks about in the Bible. I want to make this really clear that these are principles that we follow. The idea of being a giver is a command, okay? But how we break it down, they're general principles. So don't feel like that I'm laying mosaic law on you today. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying here's some guidelines that, that maybe we should follow that were law in Old Testament times, all right? So again, if you have more questions, last Sunday seminary. So follow me here. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all your tithe of your produce. So there's another 10% that's in addition to the local storehouse tithe. This 10% every three years, you could do three and a third for three straight years, or every three years you give an extra 10%. Y'all follow that? So now you're at 13.3% if you're just doing an annualized giving platform, okay? That extra three and a third, those alms, who does it go to? You give it as a bonus to the Levite, okay, because they can't work a business like you are. They can't, they can't work a full-time job like you do other than their job there. So it gives it as kind of like a bonus to the Levites, okay, but also share your gifts with the sojourner. Sojourner, who's that? That's undocumented immigrants. That's people who come from another land that don't have a green card. That's the sojourner. Some of your Bibles call these the aliens that live among you. They're not citizens of the nation of Israel. They don't have the benefits you have as citizens within Israel. So you got to take care of them too because they and their families, they still have to eat. The fatherless, that's the orphan, and the widow. We've done a lot of talk about that, how important that is. These are the people who live around you locally. Where you see a need, do your best to meet it, is what he's communicating here. Take three and a third of your annual income or 10% of your income every three years. Keep that on hand so that when you see a pastor with a need, when you see a, an immigrant with a need, when you see an orphan with a need, when you see a widow with a need, do you all follow the principle here? Keep a, a, a three and a third percent back so that when you see that need, you can give it right away. And you're not asking questions like, can I use my tithe to help them? You've got that back to give away, okay? To do things like buy kids out of slums, all right? But then back in verse 22, there's a different tithe here, okay? It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes in the field year by year. This is a third tithe. And this is the one that I call the party tithe. You guys are going to love this tithe. I'm able to go on vacation now without feeling a bunch of guilt over what I saw in 1999 because I found this verse. And it wasn't that I was just trying to assuage my guilt. I was just trying to think like, God, what do I do? How do I balance not giving everything that I have away 
and taking care of my kids and them going to school and their needs versus kids that I know are being tricked out every weekend. What do I do with that? And this is what the Bible teaches. You take that extra tithe. So now we're up to 23 and a third percent, that extra 10%. And before the Lord your God in the place he would choose, and eventually that would be Jerusalem, they took three vacations a year. Okay? They had three weeks a year where they went to religious ceremonies, but it was really, it was a week off for them. It was their vacation tied to a religious event. Okay? To make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain. This doesn't go to a local storehouse. This is for you to party on. You're like, what? Here it is. It's right there in your Bible. Okay? Tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd of the flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. In other words, you're going to celebrate the goodness of God when you take these three weeks off a year, and when you do it, take a, put back a tenth of your paycheck all year long every year so that you can party, so that you can vacation, so that you can learn that God is the one that provides for you. You need to be faithful to him with your local storehouse tithe, with the giving of your alms, but God wants you to set aside 10% for you and yours. I thought I'd get some amens there, all right? At least the husbands are like, see, honey, we can go on vacation. Not only that, like, I can't believe that I'm about to share these next couple of verses. He says, if the way is too long, here's the pragmatic how to do this. If the way is too long for you that you're not able to carry the tithe, like, okay, I'm really rich. I got 100 cows. I can take 10 with me. I don't have to take them all the way out of Jerusalem. This is where he says, liquefy your assets. So you're not able to carry 10% of what you've made that year. When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far, you're going to Aruba. All right? You can't fly 10 cows down there to have steak every night. Okay? What do you do? Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. Okay? And there, watch this. When you're on vacation, you can spend that 10%. On whatever you desire, as long as it's not just flat out sin, okay? Oxen, go to Ruby's Steakhouse. Go get that filet. Or get the lamb chops. Man, I thought I'd get more amens from you. Get the pork ribs. There we go, a couple there, barbecue. Oh my goodness, I, I don't know that I'm allowed to read this next part in a Baptist church. The women just said amen to the next word. <laughs> when you're on vacation, you can spend part of your party, you can spend part of your party tithe on what? Just don't put it on social media. It'll cause problems, okay? <laughs> but you can spend a wine. Not only that, you can spend a drink. You know what their strong drink was? Oh, guys, do not say amen when I say this. Do not say it. There are children in the room. Their strong drink was their beer. I know how it is. I got a Navy guy over here that just had to give it on that. Oh, there you go. When you're on vacation, you can have a glass of wine. When you're on vacation, you can have a beer. You can spend 10% of your income on that. And some of you are calculating right now, man, that's a lot of beer. Now, if you're doing it every week, you're going to run into some problems. Nobody becomes an alcoholic on three weeks a year. Whatever your appetite craves, 
And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And I just remember when I read this verse, it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, it's okay to eat the international buffet for 500 baht, $12, at the Westin. But then it gives this reminder, you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Do you catch that? You can party on 10% of your earnings, but don't you skip out on that tithe. Don't you skip out on those alms, those contributions, in order to party. So here's the biblical party tithe principle that we see in the Bible. You can spend 10% of your money on luxuries. And the Bible, God himself through Moses gives you permission you can blow it on whatever your appetite desires. Y'all get that? Everybody give me an amen. amen. But that's all the Bible gives you permission to do on whatever your appetite desires. Now, I don't want you pulling out your calculators right now. I just want you to see the principle of this. Y'all get what I'm Y'all understand what I'm saying? There's between law and principle. Don't miss this. Bible says, God says, Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm going to go to parties. That's the biblical party tithe principle. This is what we practice in the Willis household. But the American party principle is this. For those who spend, or for those whose annual household income, this is stats from 2016. For those who spend 100,000, or those who make family income 100,000 plus a year, typically those people spend 65% of their money on luxury items. They blow it. There's not going to be any long-term return from that. They spend it on things that depreciate, that are going away, and it's just going to be blown. Vacations, eating out, cars call way more than what you have to have. 65%, and you're like, well, good. Well, I'm not in that bracket. Well, the people who are doing 50 to 100, they're doing 50, and you're like, well, yeah, that's the rich. They're doing a lot better than we are. We're just getting by. Even Americans who aren't making 35 to 50 total household income, they're spending 40% just on themselves. Y'all getting the principle here? Now, does this say that you can't own you can't go out and buy a million-dollar yacht. Is that what this is saying, this principle? Absolutely not. But if you're going to buy a million-dollar yacht, by golly, you better make $10 million this year. You get that? You get the principle? Man, I want to take nicer vacations. Then make more money. There's your answer. I want to drink more beer. beer. Then make more money. And your wives are elbowing you like, get out there. I want my wine, all right? <laughs> Make 300000 a year. Great. Make sure you're generous first. Give a local storehouse. Make sure you're taking care of the poor. Then go spend 30000 Blow it. Y'all get it? But don't blow 100000 if you're making 300000 Do you get that? Come on. And this is the heart of the struggle. Some of you are going to go home and you're going to be like, man, I got, we, we got to do some math here. What's this going to look like? Here's the heart of where we struggle. I still battle it. Oh, I still battle it. 
battles it. Here it is. It's this principle in Leviticus 19. That is a law. It still exists today. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. What would it look like if I spent as much of my discretionary income on others, if Dee and I would spend as much of our discretionary income on others as we spend on ourselves? What would that look like? And when I talked about this with Dee, she said, I'll tell you what it would look like. It's called parenting. We spend all our money on our kids. All right, that's what it's called. It's called parenting. All right, well, maybe we should broaden our circle a little here. She would agree. Look at the context of Leviticus 19. When God says to love your neighbors, you love yourself, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Go back just a few verses. That Leviticus 19, 18 is a summary statement of what has been said throughout the entire chapter. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleans after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall have them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Like he's emphasizing it. Don't miss this. You shall not steal. Because if you're stealing from others, you don't love them as you love yourself. It's showing that you love them more. You don't steal by keeping, not giving your full tithe. Because that's showing that you love yourself more than you love the work of the, the church. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Why? Because you love one another as you love yourself. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. All these things still apply today. Do you all follow that? The, the principles in Leviticus 19 didn't die at the cross. We still shouldn't lie to each other. Do you all get that? We still need to love our neighbor. That didn't die at the cross. We still need to give to others, to the poor, to the sojourner, to the widow, to the orphan. We still need to do those things just because we live in New Testament times. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, do not change. Now here's the reality of it. The average American Christian, for those who call themselves followers of Christ, the average household tithe is 3% of their family's total income. Now, because that's what it looks like in the pews, guess what our church budgets look like in the United States? Average family gives 3%. Guess what the average church gives? To missions outside of their own walls. 3%. This is why, I, as soon as I came, I looked at the budget and I said, I don't care what we have to cut. If we expect our people to, if we expect our people to give 3%, then of course we're going to give 3% like everybody else. But if we want our people to tithe, then at the very least, we've got to tithe and give to missions. At the absolute least. But this is what average looks like. 3% to missions, half on staffing, 22% to facilities, 15% on programs, 10% for administrative and miscellaneous. Now, I'm not saying our church, one church is where we need to be just yet, uh, but I'm going to show you where we are. This is how we break down. We've like roughly $2.2 million budget, just rough numbers here, okay? This is a rough breakdown, just rounding things to the nearest 5 or 10%, basically. Um, we give 30% to missions. 30% of everything that comes in is going to go to reaching people outside this walls. A lot of that's local, try to reach local children, youth. The, the main purpose of these budgeted items, helping Will Jackson, helping uh, Max McMurray do what he's doing in Southeast Asia right now, like this money is going to them, okay? Helping like Tyler and them. We're literally giving money to the people, like they're going to Uganda, 
the money we're sending with them is going to buy children in all those slums and raise them in schools where they're taught about Jesus, giving them jobs so that when they come out of there, they won't be in the position that their families were in. That's where our mission dollars are going. We spend 30% on staffing, okay? That's low. It probably should be just a little bit higher, but here's a lot of, th this is what churches do. We need more money for our own staff here. So guess where most churches go to find that money? Missions. I'm not gonna cut our missionary salary so I can get a raise. Y'all get that? Because they are our employees too. And all of you should have shouted amen to that. Do you hear what I'm saying? They are employees of One Church Calvary, just like Tyler and Kendall and the rest of us. Do you, do you get that? So we're not going to take a raise and cut what Will Jackson's getting. We're not going to do it. Not any church I will ever pastor will I give myself a raise and I'm cutting what I give to my missionaries. It's not going to happen. But that's what a lot of churches do. So we're giving 30. If we're going to find more money to have staff eat and give more to missions, we can't cut our programming much more. And there's a certain amount of administrative miscellaneous you just can't get around when you run an organization. So where do, can we cut back? Facilities. But the problem is we're spending 15000 a month on facilities, which is a little bit down, thank God, and y'all a bit generous. But man, what could we do? Do y'all follow what I'm saying? With an extra $15,000 a month. This is what we just sang about in the song, Lion of Judah where the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be made high. I don't know if you've ever done road construction before. How do you fill in a valley? Where do you got to get that land? From the top of the mountain. Do you see what I'm saying? The people who have a lot have to take it and fill in the valleys so that there is some level of equality among God's children. Do you get that? The very minimum, what can we do to level things out? What can we do to bring justice? What can we do to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves? Listen, my friends, now, now I'm going to get to preaching. Whew. Five minutes, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to try. Here we go. I'm just going to read it. That way I can just get it done quickly. Here we go. Every church I've ever been a part of has said, let's pay someone to change the light bulbs. Let's pay someone to clean the windows. Let's pay someone to fix this. Let's pay someone to run this ministry. Let's pay someone to coordinate service projects. Let's pay someone to provide childcare. Y'all get that? That's the answer. Let's just go pay somebody to do it. Let's hire a full-time staff member to do it. Things that volunteers could easily do with not a whole lot of training. It's just math. 10 people volunteering. You say, I don't have any more money. Listen to what I'm saying. 10 people volunteering four hours a week is a full-time staff member. 20 people giving just two hours a week is another full-time staff member. Y'all tracking with me? What would it look like, church, if each one of us constructed our household budgets and or our calendars where we would spend as much of our discretionary income and or time on others as much as we spend it on ourselves? What would the churches of America, what would the world look like 
If instead of churches spending 50% of their income on staff salaries, instead of us individually spending 60% of our income, our discretionary income on ourselves, what if members volunteered their time so that the things inside these four walls can run efficiently without paid staff members so that more of our resources could be used to reach those in need who exist outside of our walls? Are y'all, do y'all follow me, what I'm saying there? What would that look like? What if we paid off our $15,000 a month building debt so that we had an extra $15,000 a month to buy children's out of harm's way, to rescue the exploited worker, to set the captive free, to bind the wounds of the brokenhearted, and to take the gospel who have never heard it before? What would that look like? You're talking trillions of dollars across the world. Yes, we could by and large and a lot of these terrible things that I've talked about this morning. I'm going back to the Westin. We're sitting there and I'm like, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know this. I told my leader with me, I said, I do know this. The Bible says, love your neighbors, you love yourself. What did we spend today bringing our youth group kids here? And they told me, I said, I know it's not in the budget, but I'll take care of this. Let's, let's take the kids back to the hotel. So we went back, and I got to my two, the two vans, told the kids, see you later. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing, only the leader did. I got our drivers. And I said, let's go back. So we went back to the house, and I told the leaders there, it was like 2 in the afternoon. I said, our driver's going to take you downtown to where, and it, the clothing's cheap over there. You can get a $150 Nike bag for 10 bucks. Sorry, Lucas, you thought I loved you. I only spent $10 on you that Christmas. Nike duffel bag, 150 bucks, this is awesome, Dad. Spent 10 bucks on it over there, okay? So you can go downtown, and I want you to take 200, $200. I gave the leaders, I said, here's $200. You go buy these 14 girls who still have the health. You go buy them a really nice dress, nicest dress you can find within this budget, because I'm still youth pastor, right? So here's $200, go. And they ran out a couple hours later. They came back, it was about 4 or 4.30. And uh, they came in, and I said, now you go in and you give it to these girls, and you tell them tonight they're eating at the five-star Westin. And so they went in, and they got the makeup on the girls, and this time they were being made pretty, not so that they could impress some guy on the street corner. Because when they came into the room, and they're all looking good again, I said, listen, a lot of people have dressed you up like this to do really bad things with you. I'm here, and I know that a lot of fathers have sold you down the road. I'm just here to tell you there's a heavenly father that is going to have a banquet for you someday that is better than anything you can imagine, but I'm going to take you to the best thing that they've got in this whole city. So we all loaded up in the vans, and we rocked it into the Westin. Here we come rolling in. I got my nice clothes on. I'm all American. I whip out the credit card. I said, here, whatever they want, you let them buy it. And they were looking like, well, we don't know. And I said, here's $200 for your wait staff. And they were like, yes, sir. All right. And so they and all the waiters were coming out there. I said, you guys do a good job. There'll be another Ben Franklin in this for you. All right. So all the waiters are over there. The rest of the guests couldn't get any service. All right. So they're over there and they're serving these girls. And each one of them has somebody buying and taking. And I just stood back for a second and I watched them laugh. And these 14, 15-year-old girls are doing what 14 and 15-year-old girls in my youth group were doing for prom. And for the first time, maybe in their lives, they partied. And my friends, listen, there's no better party tithe. And that's the best $500 I ever spent. 
when you give to the work of the Lord doing ministries like this, when you get out of debt so you can do things like that, I was able to do that because Dee and I weren't in debt. It'll be the best 500. It'll be the best 5,000. It'll be the best 50,000 that you ever spent. Amen? Why do we do it? Because knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And I know that God would say when he redeemed you from your sin in hell, Jesus would say, that's the best money I ever spent. 